So I, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. I said this about middle way through the service, last service. I'm going to go ahead and say it up front. Uh, I'm leaving after today, and many of you won't ever see me again. So what I'm about to say, if it offends you, I'm sorry. But not really. Because sometimes the gospel hurts. Sometimes the Bible pinpoints areas we don't want to look at. Sometimes it pulls things out of us that we don't want to see, that we refuse to admit, that we're not transparent enough with our hearts. And so I think this is one of those passages, part of these letters from John to the churches that that Jesus had directed and to write to. These letters are convicting, they're indicting to the church if we don't listen, if we don't listen So Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he's writing to the church at Sardis, and it says, Write to the angel of the church there, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. Those four words should scare us to death this morning. Because Jesus is saying to you and I, he knows our hearts. He knows what we're up to. He knows where the focus of our lives is. He knows what we're building our, the structure, the framework our family's on. He knows what we're up to, and it should scare us silly to know that Jesus knows us that well. It should keep us from being lulled to sleep. It should keep us from being misdirected in our focus and keeping us from having our attention where we need to. Keep that in mind. Jesus knows your works. And keep going. He says... You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come to you like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy." In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the church. It's been said on many times, many different occasions, that the church is a sleeping giant, but the question we need to ask ourselves today is why are we ever asleep? Why? You and I as followers of Jesus Christ, because we have been invited to participate in the work of the gospel, the work of the kingdom of God, have been given the privilege of a lifetime and that we carry the hope of the world within our hearts and we have the opportunity to share that message with people. And yet we have been indicted with this message that we are asleep at the wheel, that somehow we have become too comfortable. We have kind of let things lapse. We've kind of just begun to coast and even seek our own comfort more than we seek the, the, the fame of God, the reputation of God. The church of Sardis was the capital of a place known as Lydia, and it was a very wealthy place, as many of the churches were that were written about in Revelation. One of the reasons that it was considered to be such an incredible place was because it was built high in the mountains and was considered to be impregnable, that nobody would ever be able to conquer the city. But on two separate occasions, it was conquered. Legend has it that on one of those occasions, an army had come, had surrounded the city, and was waiting out uh, the days, just believing eventually they would be able to find a way to conquer the people inside Sardis. One of the guys that was on the wall of Sardis one night was walking around his guard duty. He looked over the wall, and as he did, his helmet fell off. And it bounced around on the ground. Well, realizing he would be in severe trouble for losing his equipment, he walked down the stairs of the wall, went out a secret door that was built into the wall, picked up his helmet, and went back to his spot. 
What he didn't know was that the enemy was watching. The enemy saw him make his move. They saw the door that no one had ever seen before. And so they created a diversion on the other side of the city, snuck in with special forces through that door, and conquered the town of Sardis. I believe that the church has been distracted by so many things that we've forgotten there is an enemy who waits outside. He watches us, he bides his time, and he's waiting for the opportunity to bring all of us down. If you have not been paying attention, the world around us doesn't like the church very much. They just don't. Jesus said 2,000 years ago, that's pretty much going to be the case. They're not going to feel real comfortable about the things you have to say. They're not going to necessarily like the message that you offer. And because of that, they're going to stand in opposition to you. So if you thought that you could walk in and announce that, hey, the church has arrived and that the world would sit up and take notice, the truth is that many of the places that the church exists today, the church has become irrelevant. We've fallen asleep at the wheel, believing that somehow some way things would just take care of themselves. In his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Thomas Rayner gives us several fatal causes that put once dynamic churches into the grave. If you paid any attention to the news, you know it happens all too frequently in our country. Good churches, great churches, sometimes led by very great leaders, fall because sin enters in. Compromise overtakes what they're doing. They become diverted from the focus of their attention and their mission. And these churches fall apart and become at best weak. Right now, the predictions of or the estimates of some of the people who are experts in this area, consult with the church, those kinds of things, estimate that 10% of the evangelical churches in America are dead. Even worse, 40% of them are dying and are very close to death. That means a full 50% of the churches that profess the name of Jesus Christ carry with them absolutely no power because they no longer carry out the mission they have been asked to carry out. Let me give you some of the, story, uh, some of the causes here that Rayner has, has indicated in his book. Treating the past as hero. Looking towards the past more than you look towards the future. Because guess what? As a church, we believe that in Jesus Christ, the best is always yet to come. We believe that there's always something more out there. Always something we can strive for. And so if we spend our time looking back at the good old days, looking back at the way things used to be, remembering how things used to happen, then we forget that we have a mission before us that has to be carried out on a day-by-day basis. And because of that, the world misses out on the opportunity to know the hope that you and I have. Another reason, refusing to adopt to the needs, uh, excuse me, adapt to the needs of the present community. As communities change around us, the thing we know is that the message of Jesus Christ never changes, but the methods have to. They have to. We don't operate in a 19th century world anymore or even a 20th century world. If you're still holding on to an iPhone 8, you're behind the times, right? The world... Some of you are looking nervously at me. You've probably still got a flip phone. Yeah, we're still, we are, we are in a world that changes so rapidly and we're playing catch up all the time. But the church has to be ready to adapt and to spin on its wheel and on its axis and to, to get into the game wherever the opportunities come before us. We've got to be engaged in the communities that are around us because those are our mission fields. Those are the places that Christ has called us to share the gospel, to give hope and meaning and compassion to those who need to find it. Another he offers is this, we move the focus of the budget inward instead of outward. Many of the churches that I've had the opportunity to work with over the years as I do church multiplication, 
Many of those churches will tell you, oh, we have money that's designated for this and money that's designated for that. And when you take a closer look, what you find is that they have money that makes them feel very, very comfortable about who they are. It's not necessarily about engaging a community. It's not necessarily about taking light into darkness. It's more about how do we entertain our people? How do we hold on to the ones that God has brought our way? What do we do to maintain what we've got going? And Jesus never asked us to maintain anything. He always asked us to go and to bring in more. To go and to reach the lost. To go and to find those who needed his, his message of hope and his salvation that he offered them. Why is it that in a church when somebody says, hey, we need to start a ministry, we feel like we have to pay a state paid staff person to do it? I, I love your staff. I've had the privilege of working with them in the past years. They are a fantastic group of people. But guys, the church isn't a paid staff. It's you. And if the church is not effective in its ministries, don't look at your staff. Look in the mirror. Ask yourself, what am I doing to affect the kingdom of God? What am I doing to change the path of those who are on a trajectory towards hell? What am I doing to offer my gifts, my talents, my services? Many times people will come to me and say, hey, I've got a great idea for a ministry that gave me. Can you help me get it started? And I'm like, no, you can. God gave it to you for a reason. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, he says that every single one of us have this calling on our lives to do something with who we are because God created us in advance with those good works in mind. So if you're sitting right here right now and you're going, hey, am I possibly called to be some kind of ministry? The answer is, are you breathing? Yes. You're called to some kind of ministry. You're called to some kind of service to the kingdom. It's not about your comfort and convenience. It's about his character and how it is exalted by you in your life. We've allowed the great commission to become the great omission. I know nobody in this church would ever say anything like this, but I had a guy at our church one day come up and say, why are we doing mission trips to the other most parts of the earth and the ends of the earth and all these other crazy places we hear about when we've got lost people right across the street? And because my wife has raised me to be sassy, I will look at them and go, so how many of the people across the street have you gone to reach? Because the truth is... The people who ask that question are people who don't have a heart for the person across the street or they'd be going to the ends of the earth. The church becomes preference-driven out of selfishness and personal agendas. We're more concerned about our pet ministries. We're more concerned about our favorite style of music. We're happy to come and tell the pastor what we think about his message. Hey, Jay, you've preached too long this week. Jay, you've preached too short this week. Jay, you're doing too much expository stuff. You need to be more topical. Jay, I'm tired of your topical sermons. Can you be more expository? In the course of 30-something plus years, I have heard every continued critique there is from people who sit in my congregation, including the guy who came up one day and said, you've got to grow your hair longer the light is shining off of your head I even had a guy who came to my church one Sunday one Sunday and the guy walks up to me after it's over with and he says hey you really don't need to wear horizontal sharp stripes because they make you look really broad and I said that has more to do with what my wife feeds me than what I'm wearing but thank you anyway Can I encourage you as followers of Jesus Christ and as members of this church, when you think that you have something you need to share with a staff person, don't bring it to them. Bring it to God. Instead of coming to them and saying, hey, let me tell you how you need to be doing your ministry, why not get on your knees and say, God, why don't you lead them to do the ministry the way you want them to? 
My biases don't matter. My prejudices don't matter. My favorite songs, my favorite whatever, they just don't matter. What matters is that God is exalted, that God is honored, and that people come to know him, not what I desire. Our churches would be radically different if we set aside our agendas and started pursuing the agenda of Jesus Christ as the central focus of everything we do. He talks about the tenure of pastors decreasing. You know why the tenure of pastors decreases? Because we run them off because they don't do our preferences. We put pressure on them. We discourage them instead of encouraging them. We spend more time talking about them instead of talking to God about them. We, we, we put all kinds of pressure on them. Two years ago, I read a book. study said that out of the 100 strongest congregations in America, 75% of them had pastors who had been there 10 years or longer. I attribute the fact that Station Hill is as strong as it is and as powerful as it is because you are blessed with a very, very good pastor, a very strong pastor, and you encourage him well. Don't stop. Don't stop. As the warfare around us intensifies, his family will be targeted. He will be targeted. He needs your prayers. And by the way, he didn't pay me to say any of this. I can't tell you how many times my week has been changed by somebody just randomly picking up the phone and not asking for anything, but simply just texting me and saying, I love you as my pastor and I'm praying for you. I can take on the world when that happens. But what frustrates me is to walk out of a service and hear somebody say, I didn't like any of the songs we sang this morning. At which point I just kind of want to look at them and say, did you even hear the words? Did you even hear what you were singing about? Did you even stop and focus on the one you were singing to? Or were you too focused on your preferences, your biases? Another cause of failure in churches today is that we have a failure to regularly have corporate prayer. To regularly have corporate prayer. Now here's where I want to challenge you a little bit. What are you praying about? One of the questions I've been asking my congregation in recent weeks is, are you praying safe prayers? You know what I mean by safe prayers? Before mealtime, you go, God is good, God is great, thank you, whatever's on my plate. Lord Jesus, my children are going to bed now, make sure they get up in the morning safe and sound. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers, but my question is, do you ever pray unsafe prayers? Do you ever say, God, take me out on the edge of life? Take me out where the only thing that can sustain me is your power, your strength, your wisdom. Most of our churches in America today can be defined by what we are able to pull off. Let me ask you, what's going on inside these walls that only can be defined by God's power working? Because when the world is watching from the outside and they see us being able to pull things off, they may go, great strategist, great leader, great vision. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, we want them talking about God, not us. As parents, we're more concerned about whether our kid can hit a three-pointer than we are about whether or not they can share the gospel with their friends. We're more concerned about whether or not they're going to win the ring in the championship than we are whether or not they're going to stand before God and have the ability to say, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. How about we stop praying, God, can you send my kid to a good college? Can you help him find a good wife? Can you help him have good kids and say, Lord, will you take my kid and send him wherever you want to send him? 
Take him wherever you need to take him. Use him however you want to use him. And when it's all said and done, I pray he's used up for your glory and not mine. Dying churches are churches that have no clear purpose, no vision. And many times they obsess over facilities. Now that's not a problem at my church. I told you it's a uh, 72-year-old building. Used to be a skating rink. I've had lots of sweet ladies come up and go, me and my husband met right over there in that corner. It's where we got our first kiss. And I'm like, that's all I want to hear. Don't want to go any further. On any given Sunday, there's as good a chance that there's going to be a bird coming through the roof as there is the Holy Spirit's going to show up. So you never know what's going to happen in our congregation. So we don't obsess over the facilities yet, but we're in the process of getting ready to build a building. If we don't get a building soon, we're probably going to have to go to a fourth service. And I love those kind of problems, but here's my bigger fear. We start building a building, do we become more concerned about the building than we do about the kingdom? Do we start worrying about whose classroom is where and what door goes where and what kind of brick we're going to use and all those kind of things instead of worrying about the lost person who lives right next door to where our facilities are right now? So, let me turn my attention to what Jesus has to say to us here because this is really, really important that we get this. First of all, he says, you got to be alert. You got to wake up. You got to wake up. You see, yesterday's victories mean very little to those who fill our churches today. Nobody cares about the sweet by and by. We want to know what's going to happen to us right here, right now. The reputation of your church 20 years ago does not impact the life of someone who walks through the doors today looking for hope and meaning in a life that's filled with darkness. What you were able to accomplish in revivals of years past doesn't matter to the lost person whose family is falling apart. They're trying to save their marriage. They're trying to find hope and meaning in this life. They don't care what you did yesterday. They want to know what you're going to be doing tomorrow. I think we have to be alert. We have to wake up, church. As I said earlier on, we are in the midst of warfare. And when I'm talking about warfare, don't make any mistake. Satan, Satan, the world likes to portray Satan as like this really fun kind of thing. He's an inconvenience, you know. Maybe he's like a really mean guy. Kind of like this, I don't know, kind of this giant annoyance in our lives. But if you read the Bible carefully and clearly, what you find out is that Satan wants one thing for you, and that's you to die. To die. Jesus said, I've come to give you life that's abundant and full, but he's come to kill, steal, and destroy. He's not here to be an annoyance. He's here to rip life from you. Now, why should that matter? Because, guys, the world is after your children. They're after the generations that follow us. They're trying to rip our families apart. They're trying to question who God is. And as a church, we're too busy apologizing to the world that we might offend them. The gospel offends because the gospel is truth and the world around us is living a lie. We have to hold forth that truth unapologetically with 100% conviction because it really is the only hope the world has. He goes on, he says, strengthen what remains, strengthen what remains. You see, they were content with mediocrity. They, they kind of had taken this, this approach that many churches take today. If we won't bother you, if you don't bother us, okay? You just kind of do your thing, we'll do our thing. We'll just kind of get along with each other. We'll kind of coexist with one another. 
Their faith was not radical. They were not unique. They didn't stand out from the world around them. In fact, they looked very much like the world around them. Can I just say to you today, it's my conviction that the church today has confused the word love with the word tolerance. We've learned to tolerate things in the world that Jesus never asked us to tolerate. And the most unloving thing we can do as the church of Jesus Christ is to sit back and say, you do your thing, we'll do ours. There's nothing more unloving than to look at the world and say, we don't really care about what you're going through. We've got our little holy huddle over here. We're going to come over here and do our thing. You do your thing and we'll just see what happens. There's nothing more hateful in the world than to do that to people who are lost. I think probably maybe even a bigger danger is today this. The culture's not actively opposing many of our churches because we're not worth noticing. Get in your car this week. Well, not this week. I'm on vacation. Next week, come to Chapel Hill. Take me to lunch. We'll go buy a cinnamon roll. Best cinnamon rolls in the world. And I'll drive you around a county where just about 80% of the churches are dead or dying. You walk into them, they'll tell you, oh, we're alive, we're alive. We've got six new believers. All six of them, born in the church, raised in the church. And that doesn't mean it's not important. But they're not reaching outside their walls. They're not engaging their communities. They're not taking the kindness and compassion of Christ to a world that needs to see it. And because of that, the world's not opposing them. They're just ignoring them. Because they just don't matter. Thirdly, he tells them, keep it, keep it. He says, hold on to what you're given and guard it with your very life. I know because of my time here, you are being taught the gospel. You're being taught the word of God. You're being challenged in that word. You're being asked to take up the mantle of Jesus Christ on a regular basis. But here's the thing. It's one thing to hear that word. It's another thing entirely to obey it. And so if for you, for you today, if you came in here and you can describe your relationship with Jesus Christ as an hour on Sunday and maybe one or two other things during the week, and it's not an active daily 24-hour, seven-day-a-week kind of thing, that I would question whether or not you're really obeying Jesus Christ. In fact, again, I'm leaving today, so I'm not really caring if you hear what I say in love or kindness or whatever. I'm just telling you the truth. I would question whether or not you really know Jesus at all. Because the Jesus that we preach and teach from the Bible commands us to obey. He doesn't suggest. He doesn't say it might be a good idea He says, you follow me with all your heart or you're not following me at all. Lastly, he commands us to repent. Most Christians don't truly understand the word repentance. In fact, many of us did it when we received Christ, when we started our relationship with Jesus. But did you know that Repentance is supposed to be an everyday, ongoing thing in the life of every believer. 
Paul talks about it in Romans 7 where he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's exactly what I do. In other words, I still don't have this thing down perfectly. I'm working at it. I'm trying my very best. I'm pushing towards the cause that Christ has called me towards, but I just don't get it right. So every single day, I need the grace of Jesus Christ. I need to repent of my sins. But for many of us, repentance isn't a reality in our lives. It's not a practice that we participate in. We never grow out of repentance. We never mature beyond repentance. Repentance is this constant challenge in our lives that we must measure up to the holiness of Jesus Christ. And that can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the good news. Jesus says if you do these things, there's good news for you. There's things that await you. First of all, he says... You will be clothed by him in perfect righteousness. Now, it's important you catch that by him. Because you and I do not have the ability to clothe ourselves in righteousness. The gospel teaches us that it's something that has to come from Christ on us. When we enter into a relationship and acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then his righteousness is placed on us. And that's important because you don't want to show up at the day of judgment trying to trust in your righteousness. I was in ninth grade, was invited to the first football banquet I'd ever been invited to, okay? I thought I was a stud. Some of you are laughing way too hard at that. Day came with the big event, banquet's getting ready to start, my mom and dad are going with me, and I walk out and I've got on my favorite pair of blue jeans and a really cool shirt that makes me look like a jock, okay? And my mom looks at me and says, what are you doing? I said, get ready to go to the banquet. She said, go, home, go, go back in your room and put on your coat and tie. I am not wearing a coat and tie to an athletic banquet. Have you lost your mind? And I didn't say that. She would have killed me. But I did ask that question in my head. Long story short, we went back and forth for about 15 minutes. My dad finally looked at my mom and said, quit arguing with him. Let him go like he wants to. Pulled up to the school, got out. I was the only kid who showed up in blue jeans and a shirt. Everybody else, coats and ties. I immediately looked at my mom and said, can we go home? She said, nope. I said, dad? He said, not a chance. He said, you thought you looked so good and what you were wearing, you're going to go in there and you're going to wear what you're wearing. I showed up wearing the wrong attire. I didn't belong. I stood out. Can you imagine what that feeling would be like if you showed up in front of God at the end of all of it and go, look at how clean I am. And he said, no, 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 no. When I see you, all I see is nastiness. All I see is dirt. All I see is sin. All I see is brokenness. All I see is failure. What you needed was my son's righteousness so that you might stand before me without shame. Second thing he tells us is that our names are forever written in the book of life. Forever indelible ink, man, doesn't get washed away, doesn't get taken away. Sure, you're going to make mistakes along the way as you pursue Jesus Christ. Sure, you're not always going to get it right. But the good news is that when Christ becomes your Savior and Lord, he sticks with you till the end. Lastly, it says this. He will confess them before his Father on the day of judgment. There are times when I think about that reality. 
I think we all at some point kind of imagine what the end will be like, what the judgment might be like, what heaven might be like. But one of my favorite parts to focus on is this moment where I walk in front of God and I'm absolutely so floored I can't even look at him. I fall on my face before him. And I'm going to be scared to death. I'm going to be so afraid. And slowly, surely, suddenly, I feel a hand on my shoulder. And I look up and it's the Savior. And he's standing there next to me going, hey, hey, you don't have to be afraid. Remember, you got me. I got you. And because of that, there is no shame. Stand up and receive your reward. Stand up and enter into the glory that we've created for you. Because you pursued Christ to the end. I've grown up in the church all my life. Been a Southern Baptist all my life. Been a pastor for 30 something years. I have to tell you. The condition of the church in America today worries me more than it ever has. And I know probably every pastor that's ever preached in a pulpit has probably said the same thing at some point. But if you don't hear anything else from me, hear this. It's time to wake up. America needs us. The world needs us. The kingdom of God is calling us forward to march with boldness carrying forward the light of Jesus Christ so that the world may have the hope we have. I pray that we do not fail him because he knows our works. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the privilege of this word, the truth that it brings to us. The Lord, I pray that we don't just hear and walk away. I pray that we don't just listen to words without obeying those words. I am thankful for the body of Christ that's called the church at Station Hill, Lord. Thankful for all that it has done and is doing. But there's more work to be done. There are more seeds to be sown. There's more hope to offer. There's a gospel to be shared. There's a God to be made famous. So help us, Father, to set aside our desires, to set aside our needs for comfort and acceptance, and instead live boldly before this world the gospel message that that there is a Savior who died, a Savior who was buried, a Savior who was resurrected, also that we may have the privilege of knowing the God who created us. May we embrace the call. May we accept the commission. May we successfully complete the task you have called us to. It's in Jesus' name I pray.